This week on the Ownership Economy podcast, we talk with Joshua Tan, a practitioner fellow at Stanford's Digital Civil Society Lab and the executive director of the Meta Governance Project. The Meta Governance Project is building standards and infrastructure for digital self-governance. Joshua's work focuses on how to build modular governance systems from the ground up. It's like unbundling the cooperative model into governance rights and earning mechanisms and then allowing organizations to choose the modules they want to use, all powered by the composability of cryptography and distributed ledger technologies. We go from there into topics of progressive decentralization and DAO-to-DAO coordination. Hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So I'm going to hand it over to Jahad now to introduce Joshua. We're really excited to be following up this podcast right after Nathan Schneider because they've done work together. So Jahad, over to you. Awesome. Thanks, Martin. So Joshua, thanks for joining us. Just to kind of kick this thing off, I met you at the Dallas conference in real life, IRL, out in Lisbon. And then a few weeks after that, before that, we had actually, you know, I lucked into the MetaGov project online. I think I just saw it on Twitter randomly, and then we did a short call. And basically, I, like Martin said, I was surprised I hadn't heard of you because, you know, Nathan Schneider, you're involved with him. You're doing a lot of cool stuff there. So basically, I guess the good way to start with this is just to say, how did you first get involved in this space? Yeah, of course. First of all, thanks for having me here. It's really a great pleasure. And I've always enjoyed the conversations I've had with you. Lots of fun, uh, including one that maybe we'll get into later yes, on about that yes, dystopias. Absolutely, um, we will get such to a that. fun conversation <laughs> topic. We don't necessarily want to build a dystopias, but they're kind of fun to think about. But um, I got into this space. Uh, so my background is as a kind of um, I'm a theoretical computer scientist slash mathematician. I kind of grew up mainly in pure math, and I got into online governance kind of very roundabout way. I was in Berlin consulting slash helping out at this video game company called Clang. And they were building this game called Seed. It's kind of like a sandbox MMO. Kind of imagine like Minecraft meets The Sims meets EVE Online. And the idea is Seed is what they wanted to do was have this completely sandbox environment in which politics was also part of that sandbox. So having tooling to support, you know, building of democracies and oligarchies or, you know, eco-fascist terrorist groups or Game of Thrones or literally be be trial of combats every, you know, on the regular. And there I met this person named Lawrence Lessig. So Larry is a very, I had no idea, but he's like a very, very well-known, well-respected lawyer, constitutional scholar. And he was, I was there kind of helping them design their economy. And Larry was there kind of advising them on their politics. Yeah. And we just got started talking. Like Larry's desk was literally next to mine. And super cool. Larry then invited me to help him teach a class at Harvard Law School on the governance of virtual worlds. And that's basically how I got started. MetaGov itself actually kind of grew out immediately from, was an immediate product from us teaching this class. We essentially started MetaGov with two of the folks that we had invited as speakers to that class. Super cool. And I think it's funny you say that because I'm looking at the description of Meta Governance Project, right? An interdisciplinary research group working on the governance of virtual worlds right there. Jumping right right out of that group. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, The class is literally called Governing Virtual Worlds. So basically, you know, you kind of already did this, but we do like to make sure that we break jargon down for people. And I mean, when you, you know this as well as anyone, when you jump into Web3, it is just like new term, new term, new weird term. It's like, what is this? Can you, you know, kind of the classic ELI five explain it to me like I'm five for the, this meta governance project? <laughs> right. What is meta? Long story short, we 
conduct research on online governance. And more specifically, we try to build things that make it easier for communities to build their own form of governance. Kind of like the original vision that I described from this video game called Seed. You know, we want to make it possible. Um, I mean, the internet is not exactly a video game, though. You know, look at certain parts of crypto, it feels a little bit like it. Definitely. And the idea is like, what kind of tools can we give people? Or another way of thinking about it, how do I make the tools that already exist more accessible mm-hmm. so that people can truly build, you know, their own kinds of governance systems from oligarchies to democracies to, you know, very complicated kinds of token economies Yeah, using like these kinds of building blocks. How do I make that sort of process more accessible, easier so that, you know, we can make, we can just encourage more playfulness in governance or more experimentation. That's really what we're all about. Got it. So, I mean, this is, I have my own little interview guide here, but you're just so interesting to talk to that. I just have to jump right into this. So (laughs) when you talk about tools to make, you know, governance experimentation, more playful to explore possibilities, stuff like that. Why don't you tell us about a few of those tools, right? Like I've looked at meta governance project. I've seen there's things like agreement engine, MetaGov gateway, but people are dealing with, as you know, real life, nitty gritty, institutional governance problems and whether they're in a video game or whether they're in like discord or, you know, raising money for a standard company, they're going to deal with stuff like this. So what are some of the tools that you've developed for these sort of ecologies? Of course. So the main tool that we work on is called the MetaGov gateway and the gateway itself is in one sense, it's like very straightforward. It's an API gateway that's designed for online communities. So existing API gateways are kind of more, they're backend services. That take that consume a bunch of other backend services and make them more accessible to, you could say, like front end developers or end users that need to like query these systems to extract some sort of like, you know, analytics data or like a for a dashboard or things like that. A lot of like large enterprises, not even and even like not so large enterprises, like have these gateways just because they like at some point you have like too many APIs or endpoints and they just like. It gets too complicated. For online communities, there's a slightly different use case, but it's like it is still intended to target online communities that are a little bit more complex or who want to build more complex forms of essentially governance mm-hmm. or sort of community interaction, right? Imagine you, you know, some communities, especially the more successful ones, have yeah. anywhere from like three Discord servers, 10 del- Telegram channels. A guy like, I mean, it's like terrifying bots on like different telegram channels and different different discord channels and different mm-hmm. slack channels that actually need to interact somehow because they're pulling data to like a single a common yeah. library like source cred for example or maybe just coordinate there's like for online communities that kind of are digitally native you often use like an incredible number of different like digital services definitely and if you want these this, things that talk to each other in any kind of way, you need something like an API gateway, or you just need to spend a lot of money on, you know, developers to maintain the, your backend. Got it. So that's MetaGov gateway then. Yes. Got it. The gateway also ships with a couple of kind of like tools, especially something called Policy Kit, that consumes is like currently the primary consumer of the gateway. So basically, the idea is like, you know, if you go into a Slack or a Telegram or whatever. There's some sort of basic administration or governance that just comes with it. Like there's a you're the owner of the channel, or there's an admin role. But oftentimes, like these services don't necessarily don't expose like all the different ways. There are like lots of things that they don't expose, and there's lots of ways of controlling 
and sort of like, I'd say like automatically moderating, you know, these kinds of services or gatekeeping, right? Something that Colab Land does that the services for the platforms themselves don't provide. And policy kit is basically an add-on that's like ships with the gateway that makes it immediately viable to sort of build operational governance policies directly on top of these platforms. So it's consuming the meta of gateway, consuming all these API endpoints in order then essentially to overlay the governance and essentially replace the governance of the normal governance of this court with something that you, know, you decide for yourself. Got it. And so like you know, for us here, for Martin and I, the reason why we started this, one of them, right, is that we are principally interested in like, what is this ownership economy? Why is it so important? Well, really, one of our theses is that when you involve more people in governance, you're going to have you know broader, more accessible, and more complex information processing capabilities. If you kind of zoom out and say like, oh, we're incorporating more data sources, right? And so mm-hmm. like, that's one of the things where we think that if you do that and you give people tools to do that, you're going to create more economic value. You're going to be able to distribute that value more effectively eventually, right? Like that's just one of the core theses of ownership in general, right? It's why these folks are out here going like, we need to create a platform. We need to give creators governance in the platform so that they're not outside of it, like in Patreon and just kind of saying, please let us in and tell you what we need, right? So mm-hmm. when I look at some of these tools, right? Like agreement engine, MetaGov gateway, policy toolkit, like, what do you think are the possibilities there to address things like this in the ownership economy? So these are all like small niche tools that address like a set of use cases. Let's put it that way. And what we're really hoping and what we're going to be built, we will be building kind of in the next phase of development in Q1, Q2 of 22 is what I think of as like uh, like Anaconda for governance. You, know, you guys heard of Anaconda. It's kind of like a no, please data science package that just, it's a, basically it's a package manager and a distribution that just yeah. makes it really easy to use the suite of tools like for data scientists. And what we're hoping to do is just make it really easy to sort of download and install mm-hmm. a wide selection of different tools for online communities. Now for the ownership economy specifically, I think I would have to better understand what you mean by ownership in these cases. But my general sense is that like when you have ownership over something, you have a set of rights, right? You're given, it's defined through a set of rights. But generally speaking, like what we know and what we observe is that it's like oftentimes like people don't really exercise these rights. That's a huge problem, but it's been a problem for a long time, right? It's been a problem for like engagement has been a big problem for lots of online communities throughout the history, even when they didn't have like explicit rights, right? Yeah. So I guess what I would say is like, you know, part of the reason we, you know, got together, like these four different people working across different parts of the internet, like Larry and I were working on video games and Louis was working on social networks, Prima was working on blockchains and realized like there are problems that exist across all these different communities that were all related. And that certain solutions have been developed in one part that could be applicable to the other. We didn't know. I mean, it would be interesting to try, but currently it just wasn't making the jump, Right. So long story short, I don't know the solutions to how like this will ultimately affect the ownership economy or Web3 or crypto or whatever sort of like arena you want to think about. But my sense is like, let's try to make these solutions a little bit more fluid and a bit more portable so we can sort of, you know, get the entire ecosystem. Let's just like, let's try out new things and make the sort of barriers to using, to trying new things lower. 
got it. Yeah. That barrier to trying new things being lower is absolutely like spot on, right? That's like, that's one of the things I love about this space is that people are relentless and trying new things, right? They're just going yes. to go do it. And, you know, when I hearken back to what you and I were talking about at the Dallas conference, right? We're surrounded by about 400 people who are in, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, right? Ostensibly. But, you know, there's a lot of folks who are just kind of repeating things and not necessarily seeing that like, hey, if I do this, this actually completely foreseeable consequence will happen, right? So like I'm hearkening back to things like, you know, the the IAD framework, right? The institutional analysis and development framework of Ostrom mm -hmm. and things like that. But basically one thing you hinted at here is like, you want to make, I'm putting, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, but you tell me by the sound of it, composable tools, right? Mm -hmm. Something that, and and this is kind of a good segue for us to then say, You've written this great paper to get a little even deeper on this, on composability in complex games, right? And so, yeah. you know, we wanted to kind of ask you here, just to kick this off. There's a lot of people doing complex institutional innovation, right? And when we think yeah. about ownership, we see it as one, this is a really complex institutional innovation, right? Like when you come in here on ownership to date, right? There's maybe there was the ESOP that was like one APOC right? The employee mm -hmm. stock plan, that was an APOC of innovation and in how we spread governance and wealth, not necessarily governance so much, but definitely wealth, right? Yeah. And then, you know, now it kind of seems like you're skating ahead in some ways of the puck, right? In that old saying of, hey, how do we actually give people a framework for complex institutional innovation? That's basically what I took this as. Is that how you would kind of characterize yeah. the paper? Yeah. So, so that paper was making two claims. One is just pointing out that institutional design it's really hard. And there's like, there's a way that practitioners, and I would include Ostrom, you know, as in, in the set of practitioners approach this, right? They do it through these principles, through, you know, querying, like talking to people doing like, Ostrom was really like an ethnographer in a lot of ways. Yes, um, She really went out and talked to people and tried mm -hmm. to understand what they were doing. And she was not the kind of economists that we typically associate with games and game theory. Yes. That said, so this paper was kind of like a try attempt to kind of bridge these things. And it was trying to do that through, it was actually like the second hypothesis is really about, well, okay, what are game theorists doing, right? They're building these relatively sort of complex mathematical models that because of their complexity and how they need to get specified, you know, are fundamentally limited in like how much they can sort of just treat or understand. So like there are examples of like, you know, practical, like people model like certain parts, certain like situations in game theory. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I think there was a paper on hydroelectric systems and the design of these things in India. But, yep. you know, when you design these like hydroelectric systems, like you oftentimes, like when you build the dams that impacts like downstream, like farming communities, as well as like lots of different other stakeholders besides just like, you know, producing power at a certain cost. Yeah. And, you know, there was a very like sort of like I think a nice paper kind of like using game theory to understand these things, but they just, at some point they said like, okay, we literally cannot model like the impacts on these farming communities and how they might behave. Cause it's like, there's just too much. Like yeah. there's like any kind of one of these projects has like so many downstream implications. And then of course the point of game theory is that it's not only downstream with something, you know, has an implication for a set of actors. They can sort of, if they're rational, they can see it happening yeah. and like compensate and do something that you don't necessarily expect. That's why game theory gets you like into really interesting situations in equilibria. And anyways, so compositional game theory is a mathematical formalism that tries to address this problem. And the pitch of the paper was that really kind of articulating that if you want to address this problem, you have to reframe game theory as something that's 
you know, mathematical and that you build, you know, in these like, you know, ivory towers as something more of like a, as a programming practice. And compositional game theory gives you a, a kind of like a mathematical, a mathematical specification for building that programming language. And we mm-hmm. build part of that programming language. And now we're trying to sort of like practice it. And sort of saying, okay, if you really want to use game theory to build up to these institutional designs that Ostrom was already doing back in the 80s, yeah, you know, we need to start approaching this as a kind of like computational discipline and yeah. import all the tools and sort of principles we developed in software engineering. And this is kind of like how we should do it. That's amazing. And I mean, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask you ELI5, explain it to me like okay. five again, but only on one term, actually. We were okay. just talking about this before you hopped on. I think that composability is a super interesting idea within this. And so can you tell us what do you define as composability? Is it a mathematical construct? Is it something that, you know, maybe is a little more colloquial? How should we think about that before we jump into how to use these frameworks? Yeah. So in my field, uh, composition has a very specific term. Usually think of it as like function composition, right? Yeah. Another way of thinking about composability is that if I get one object of a certain type, another object of another type, I can stick them together. I have objects of type A, another object of type A, and I can stick them to form another object of type A, mm-hmm. right? So it's, like, it's very strict in some sense. Composability is a, actually can be like a relatively strict condition. There's another notion that's related that people kind of talk about much more colloquially, which is modularity, right? This idea of I have a module here, you know, in software engineering, yeah, I can install it without thinking about the others. So it's like yeah. the ones independent from the other. Composition and modularity are related, but they're not the same concept. Got it. And so it's funny you said that because we were talking, our side came from like, I was drawing on like Herbert Simon stuff to kind of mm-hmm. explain like, oh, this is probably what composability means, which is, you know, that's like the modularity hierarchy type thing that he was talking about. But anyway, mm-hmm. the composable thing is very interesting because when you look out on the space right now in blockchain, there's a number of protocols who are like, oh, we're all, we have to be composable. We're composable first. We're building yeah, public yeah. goods. We got to build open source. Right. And so like, you know, just to give you one example, Toucan protocol, which I believe you might have been sitting at the table with me at, at the Dallas next to me or nearby when the, when the Toucan people were talking, but Toucan is building this infrastructure for basically carbon and DeFi, right? So like they're mm-hmm. trying to bring carbon as if you think about it in the composable sense as like a new money Lego, right? To Web3. They want to make it like a type within you, within kind of if I'm using your language, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the cool things they're doing is they have this thing called Toucan Bridge. And, and it basically just does you know one thing. It's just you're a person who owns legacy carbon credits on chain and they're off chain, right? And what usually what happens is you're going to buy those things and then like, that's it. People do it as like a show, right? They lock those up. They buy the $1 ones until Klima mm-hmm. showed up a couple of weeks ago. But then the whole point of those is to bring your carbon legacy carbon credits on chain, making them composable with almost every DeFi protocol. Right. So mm-hmm. like if I told you that was happening, right. And maybe, you know, someone like in Toucan is sitting there thinking through something like compositional game theory, how does something mm-hmm. like that become real for them? What do you think about that, about that idea? So composability on chain, like, I think just like the word gets used in all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. And if they mean like, it can mean, you know, one, just the sense of modularity, right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when talk, when uh, sometimes I feel like, you know, for example, like Zodiac, like Gnosis Zodiac uses yeah, yeah. like the composability language. And really yes. they're talking about modularity mm-hmm. in those cases. When you talk about composability on chain in the sense of like, you know, one token being kind of transferable or interoperable on another one. Yeah. That's what I would kind of associate more with 
maybe interoperability. I, I think mm. I, I still need to better understand that notion. Just like the fact that it appears on this thing, now it can appear on this thing, and it's like yeah. it's transactable, right? So I built a plugin that sort of makes it easy for like transactions to go through. Yeah. So that's that's more like interoperability, right? And then composability is. I would say like very relatively rare in blockchain. It's relatively rare in a lot of software engineering because composability in the way that, you know, is it's defined technically really looks much, I mean, like it, it happens all the time in, at a basic level, which is function composite and people compose things all the time, like compose functions, like a developer will compose functions. Yeah. But it's very hard to sort of like support that at the level of, you know, these really complex, you know, software entities. I will say that this is actually the subject of like existing research. So like my collaborators, Jules Hedges, Philip Zahn, computer scientists and economist, respectively, are they're do currently doing this research for the Ethereum Foundation to support more verifiable contracts, right? To yeah. actually to truly make sure that these like economic concepts are composable in the way that, you know, is written in a way that is rigorous. Right. Gotcha. And so that if you're writing it on one blockchain. It's composable across, say, all of them. If they're, it's actually done in a reproducible way. Yeah, let's use the word reproducible. <laughs> reproducible. Got it. Cool, cool, man. And then I think, like, when you think of composability in the space, the reason why we're like doubling down on that, at least, you know, you mm -hmm. walked through three really interesting use cases. But one, and you know, please correct me if I'm wrong too, but this is this one I thought was very interesting. I could be from another one of your papers, but you kind of walked through this example that, you know, if you've been in it depends on when you're entering the web three space. Cause as you know, there's just every day, it's like a full-time job to stay up on this space. But, uh, <laughs> everything is changing so fast, but one of the models that's been around for a few years, which a lot of people put some steam behind is this idea of a like benevolent dictator for life. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, this seems to be happening in a lot of, you know, when you look into the real world, there's a lot of examples of this, right? Like I think of you know, Chobani, if you fear to the yogurt company, right? They mm -hmm. literally have a version of this in out right now in, in that the founder of that company, you know, started 15 years ago, he, you know, bootstrapped it. And just recently, when you think about, this is one of the cases I like to point to in the ownership economy, right? Is that the, the founder of this company then decided about four, three or four years ago to give, he was like the main, the way by far majority of his company but he mm -hmm. actually realized the contribution of his employees to date and literally just created like a hundred millionaires overnight when he said, Hey, I'm actually going to give equity to and majority control of my company to the people who built it in the last 15 years. Right. And so like, that's almost like a real world example of your benevolent dictator for life. And so I guess coming around to this, right. When you think of like this modular politics and composability, right. One of the really interesting ideas is that use case that you walked through with BDFL, right? Where you're like, here we have a person who started an amazing open source project. Mm -hmm. And she, at the very end of it, actually has transitioned into the community over time and used the construct itself to bridge herself back into it, right? And if I'm explaining it right, you know, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. But basically, when I was looking through modular politics, right, you're basically mm -hmm. saying that it helps, you know, a person launch this project, she becomes a benevolent dictator, creates a lot of value over time, but then she eventually channels her own role through the system she created, right? And like, so now us, you know, we're super interested in, you know, not just starting new projects, but, you know, this is a model that we see as the future in a lot of ways that you decentralize governance so that it becomes an advantage in how you grow the company and all that. So yeah. is this kind of how you see it playing out with this BDFL sort of transition? Like how far do you see that sort of playing out? So a lot of projects do typically start out 
from, you know, let's take a single founder or a set of like a small group of founders, mm-hmm. right? especially if you're building like technology, you know, this is just like how it typically works. And then there's, I'm sure you guys have talked about this before, some notion of progressive decentralization that's certainly popular in Web3 circles, but it's also, you know, has been a pattern in just the rest of the economy for like hundreds of years, right? Yeah. A lot of like, I guess what we're trying to do right now is figuring out better ways of supporting and incentivizing mm-hmm. this kind of decentralization yeah. or this kind of like, or what I think of it as like a governance transition of some sort, right? So the paper itself just specifies, oh, you know, this is something that happens. You build these systems for, you know, you have a beginning system, which might be a, like a BDFL. And then you have some sort of target system, which is, you know, the end state. And then, you know, it gives a little bit of sort of taste of what the transition might be. But I think that's like, well, I don't think the paper, like the paper is trying to articulate something a little bit different, but focusing on that example, like this is absolutely, I think, one of the most critical subjects that we are trying to sort of figure out in Medica right now. And if you talked to Nathan earlier, then he very likely talked about like exit to community, right? Yeah. This idea of how do I support comp- private companies who want to sell or transition to some sort of like community ownership, kind of along the patterns of like the original ESOPs, but now transitioning to like a larger sort of community of stakeholders. And what I would sort of like focus on is not just the beginning and the end, but the middle. You know, what is that transition period? How is that supported? How is that governed? How do I facilitate and incentivize people to sort of undertake that process and reduce the risk involved in it, right? I think until we kind of resolve that question, we're not going to see as many cases as we would like of this like pattern of exit community or of this pattern of like, you know, community ownership, just because most projects do start out with these BDFLs or sort of some sort of like small scale ownership. And then, you know, we don't really have in, have a good answer for like how to support that transition yet and how to sort of de-risk it for the, um, for the people who are starting the process. So I just want to follow up on one thing there. So when it came to ESOPs, one of the big kind of reasons that a founder might want to transition their their company to their to ownership from their employees is there's actually a huge tax benefit to doing that. So it's written into the legislature, right? And so there's this regulatory environment that supports that. And at the same time, so you have this regulatory and policy component of this that supports the transition to broader ownership. At the same time, you know, when the Chobani founder started, he didn't know he was going to be a billionaire, right? He just bought this kind of random factory up in up, upstate New York, oh, yeah. right? And, and you know, somehow made a billion dollars off of yogurt, which is amazing. <laughs> but uh, then he decides he wants to transition, you know. And so, how do you deal with intentionality here, right? Like, because I would think that when mm-hmm. I think of kind of the the governance layer that is being built in these communities, the rules are being set in the beginning, or they're being set over time, right? And so, when you think about the fact that intentionality within these entrepreneurs can change, and maybe not everyone is open to this idea of a fully decentralized or decentralizing their firm today, but they might want yeah. to in the future. How do the systems that you're building kind of account for that? And so I guess there's two questions there. One, what's the policy environment that's required to support this? And then yeah. two, how do you deal with this kind of middle, not the start or the 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 end, but but really kind of how intentionality of that core team might actually change over time. And so they might not want to put these things in to the project at the beginning, but they might actually want to do it over time. So speaking to the second first, and I do actually really want to talk about like how we can support the regulatory environment for these kinds of initiatives. 
I guess I would just like the way I would sort of think about this is try to break up this kind of decentralization in as many stages and discrete stages as possible, like tiny little steps, right? So, you know, in the Web3 slash DAO space, you see a lot of like financial decentralization and operational decentralization happening at the same time. I think like Shapeshift tried to do this, right? Whereas, you know, for ESOPs, you just have like financial decentralization without much operational decentralization because essentially it's still like run as a hierarchy. And even in financial decentralization, I still honestly need to do more research and understand this space better. I feel like that could be cut up in sort of different sort of discrete steps that sort of like de-risk it. Or another way of thinking of just like you offer a smorgasbord of different options and different teams with different sort of intentions or different interests will pick different ones that suits their circumstance, right? But they need to be aware of these options and they need to give some, be given some sort of like, like either demonstration or some sense of like, this is what's happened before. And these were the results, right? To have some sort of comfort with pursuing one of these strategies. The um, I'll definitely say like the people I interact with that want to do some sort of like transition of this sort or some sort of exit, some sort of exit to community tend to be like relatively ideologically motivated, right? I mean, there's, there's different kind of levels of this. There's a lot of people interested in this are, you know, companies that haven't necessarily found like a market niche yet. So they're still kind of iterating on their business model while they're sort of also like thinking about, you know, these kinds of like what I think of as like an exit or like the ownership and the eventual governance of that sort of, of that product, which I think is, I mean, I understand why my sense is like, maybe that's not the best of your time and resources to be focusing on these kind of questions while like you're still trying to figure out what the core product and market you're trying to address is. But yeah, just speaking to this ideology question, like ideology still plays a large role in these kinds of exits. I don't think it's, something yet that is like truly motivated by like, you know, like a company that's just purely profit seeking, profit maximizing company is considering these communities exits just for the sake of making as much money as possible. That said, I would really be interested in exploring and we're trying to do some research on this in how, you know, different forms of exit community could support these kinds of like essentially incentivized from a purely profit-based angle and that ties into your first question, essentially, like if the regulatory environment, you know, sort of like, you know, you can have like sort of there are tax credits for like carbon offsets or tax credits for, you know, wind power. What if we had credits of some sort uh, to support ownership transitions of this sort to make that kind of like cost benefit calculus tilted a little bit more toward like trying some of these more risky, newer models for ownership that have yet to be proven potentially could have huge impacts on the economy, I think at the level of, you know, wind power or renewable energy taking over for sort of fossil fuel-based kinds of energy production. Martin. Yeah, so just on that point, point, I think one last kind of thought on that, just to close it back with the conversation with Nathan. And so, Joshua, one of the things that came up last week is kind of the, the Howey test and how some of these founders that are building tokens might actually be choosing to allocate more to, to the community through kind of decentralization so that they don't qualify as a security and the token actually qualifies as a, as a token, right? And so like that would be an example of one of these kind of soft regulatory nudges that the SEC decided to make to essentially say, okay, if there's not one company that actually governs this token and you don't have control, then you can treat this as a as a utility, even though it might have all the same elements of a security because it's fungible, because you can convert it into fiat fairly easily. And so these teams yeah. are essentially saying, well, if I can take 10% of something that's more likely to be a billion dollar company and I don't have to deal with all the securities regulation, 
then fine, I'll take 10%. So, so maybe there's more examples like this over time that you kind of develop through the project. <laughs> yeah. So like, actually I do like this tip on progressive decentralization, right? I kind of want to turn it a little bit on its head, be interested in almost both of your opinions on this actually. So the Hive project, Joshua, have you heard of Hive? You mean one hive or a hive? One hive, sorry, you're correct. One hive, the folks, you know, Michael Zargon, who is a person yeah, that yeah, you yeah. kind of collaborate with, is involved with them, right? They released this really interesting paper, if you, which we'll put in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, it's not a paper on their Substack where they basically said the pro- focus of it is DAOs and the pitfalls of progressive decentralization. And so, like, this is a really interesting concept because they basically walk through the, you know, almost like in a case study kind of way and they say, like, hey, yeah, you know, A16Z and other people are putting out all these things on how to progressively decentralize and start as a benevolent dictator for life. But as Martin pointed out, there's now this strong incentive around maybe actually you should start that way because you won't be a security. And then on the other side of it, you know, you hinted at this with product market fit is that there's a lot of people who are coming out and saying, actually, like, you know, product market fit, though it matters, you know, it's important. You still need a fiercely little community. Whether that community is customers, whether it is you know some people who are building alongside the project, you actually need that. And progressively decentralizing can actually hinder the growth of that community and the culture it creates. So I know mm-hmm. I know you're involved with a lot of different people. What's your take on that? So the kind of the question is challenging the existing norm around progressively decentralizing, building centrally, and then kind of exiting yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. Like, what if you Um, started that way? What are the, you know, in your opinion, what are the the trade-offs be? What are the hurdles? What are the really obvious problems? I mean, as an organization that kind of like, um, so not communities are very different, like different communities are very different. And if you have like a core team that's like effective, that's like managing things and is like on top of it, even as a community, yeah, that is very different from just like a mass of random people showing up on a Twitch channel. right? Right. And obviously that's both structured by the technology that exists as well as to be fair, most of it is just about like the kind of people and the trust they have with each other. So you can't get away from that soft element. Yeah. And if you have this like, you know, cohesive community that's like able to sort of take things and build things, then yeah, why not run with it? I haven't seen that many examples of this, like being like super working out, but then again, I don't think like there are that many examples period of like this being attempted. Yeah. And if the regulatory sort of environment is favoring, then, you know, I'm here to support these kinds of experiments. I love it. That said, it's like, I guess I, I have these kinds of thoughts to myself all the time, actually, about, um, so like Metagov, just by the nature of what it is, it, like it has to, it works with a lot of communities, yeah. right? Especially lots of communities that are more already, like to some degree, community governed. And these organizations typically are just like much slower moving. They take mm-hmm. time to make decisions. They take mm-hmm. time to come to consistency. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they don't necessarily know what they really want. Yeah. And it's like a long process for them to figure that out. This is, I mean, it's frustrating on our part because like, you know, in some many ways we're a startup, right? And yeah. We're trying to figure out like how to achieve product market fit, how to sort of iterate our offering to, you know, be usable by these communities. But right. it's like so slow working with some of those folks. And it's like, it's, it's not something like we think is wrong. It's yeah. just like this, like we know this is the nature of these kinds of communities, but like, how can we improve that? How can we sort of like get the ecosystem as a whole to move faster and make faster decisions? Because, you know, it's just like a cascade type effect. If I'm making, like, I need to make decision, but it depends on these decisions, which then depends on these things. If the entire ecosystem of like, you know, BDFLs makes, you know, you can have this thing where like the BDFLs ecosystem of like private companies, you know, make decisions like in 
I don't know, five hours, the time that would take like a week for this ecosystem of community-driven organizations. Right. That's a problem, right? That's a huge problem. Yeah. Well, actually, to jump out on that as well, do you see this primarily as a tooling problem? Because there's so many DAO tooling and other things out there, or do you really still kind of see this as a problem of social complexity? I think it's, honestly, it's social complexity. I don't think it's just tooling. Another way of thinking about it is that you know, social complexity throws around prop like just it generates problems. It's like an amazing problem generator, right? <laughs> yeah. You solve, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you yeah. have these technologies and you can whack one mole that comes out, but then like the social structure changes, some new sort of pattern arises, and you then you need to build a new kind of like workflow to support that. Yeah. There's no single tech solution that's going to solve all the problems of social complexity. So it's not, I mean, th- you could obviously have better platforms, but yeah. they need to be constantly evolving. And that's not how. I think platforms are set up or designed. They solve like this point in time, yeah, yeah. this point in line for these yeah. communities and like, mm-hmm. you know, and that's okay. But yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Well, I think this is where you and I kind of vibed in real life when we were in Lisbon is like, you know, I think you said something to me like, you know, that you liked, though I have my own ideological motivations. I'm honestly just kind of out here thinking, how do we get more people to play in this space, right? Kind of in the same way that you're thinking, how do we make it, how do you, Nathan, other folks build tools that make it easier to play with the possibilities here, right? And so like, I think that, you know, having said that, then uh, one of the other things that comes up, and I just want you to kind of ruminate on this, is you know this this social complexity that results from you know honestly a number of incentives like you know like Martin said the let's not be a security let's progressively decentralize that's going to present yeah. certain social com- social hurdles to you know, making decisions. The people on the other side of this who maybe are a little bit more ideologically motivated even than me might say, well, given a fiercely loyal community. Like you'll find product market fit, it'll merge organically because the community can now be your customer and a co-designer. How does that sound to you? I mean, ambitious but risky. Yeah. You you can have like, you know, there are people that are into these, you know, existing web three systems for like massive amounts of money, yeah, but are still disengaged from the governance, right? Why would you know, even if you have like a kind of like a great community, like how can you get them to like yeah, I guess I just long story short, I'm, I'm not convinced yet of the advantages of just like saying I have this community and it's going to like magically solve my product market fit problems. Yeah. Yeah. They're engaged, but there are plenty of like, you know, how do I say it? Like for-profit hierarchical organizations that also have like engaged communities. Very right? true. So it's not like you're competing with, you know, it's somehow, yeah, I'm just not convinced that like yeah, ownership on its own is going to like the magic sauce that solves everything. I think it needs to be ownership plus lots of other things. I think you're right. Cause I mean, we are humans. There's at least been two forms of motivation objectified by the various people who study it. Right. And whether or not you say that they're real object, intrinsic and extrinsic. Right. So it can't necessarily mm-hmm. just be ownership. And what do I get out of it? Cause like you said, I can point to any number of web two communities from here to the you know horizon that basically, you know, have a really thriving community. It's just about what you call that community. Right. And I see a lot of parallels here. Like, you know, there's a number of, you know, okay. The Airtable community, right. When you look mm-hmm. at some of the SaaS companies and things that people are trying to build those people, when you talk to them, they're crazy about Airtable and they're crazy about their little small business, right? Like it's mm-hmm. like, it lets me do this, then the other, it enables me to achieve this. And mm-hmm. so I think the web three people, 
you know, Martin gets in my case for jargon and he's right, by the way, I'm not poking fun at him for this, but like, you know, you have so much impenetrable complexity and jargon on what the thing is yeah. and where I think that even that's like a, a barrier to this, you know, sort of forming, forming a useful community. Right. I guess I would just say, I mean, maybe this is something that came up and honestly, this is something that Nathan taught me. I think it's yeah. really correct, but that like a lot of ways we're in this space where we need to train ourselves and build skill sets to be a community. Uh, yes. We need to learn how to become better communities. Yes. Uh, we're not necessarily taught that um, in our day and age. You know, we're focused on building kind of atomic, our individual skill sets in order to build a career. And kind of like the thing we need to do in order to really get for Web3 to become successful. Yeah, okay, we need some under, underlying sort of infrastructure, whether it be tokens or rights or whatever platforms uh, to support this. But we also need to train each other to be better people in the community to learn how to work together in this kind of format that's not a hierarchical, like somebody giving me orders, telling me what to do, right? I think that's that's going to be critical to finding, to making this this entire project successful. Martin, did you? Yeah, so I have a, I just have a, a question where I'm trying to kind of pull this together in my own mind. So my background has always been kind of in these operational roles and, and more and more kind of on the investor side. But where I get kind of a little bit thrown off by this is, you know, what is a heurist? What's the heuristic essentially for thinking through what a successful community looks like and whether or not the governance in that community is actually successful, right? Because governance, like when you think about it from the perspective of stakeholder theory, you've got this kind of claim on resources. And the whole point of governance is essentially to make sure that your claim on those resources from the community is, is protected, right? And so that's where ownership comes in and that's why it's important, right? But in kind of the, the work that you're doing, like how do you think about this is a vibrant community, this is a intentional community, this is this community is achieving the goal when when you don't have so simple of a of a kind of a a way of measuring success, right? A quantitative kind of pecuniary measure, right? And so like, how have you seen that play out in the communities that you've been involved with? And how are people trying to measure whether or not the governance layer and the modularity of that governance layer kind of is successful in advancing the goals of the community? So the question is, to what degree, like, how do we evaluate the success of governance software, but also governance interventions? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, it's like so much of like, if you think of the traditional firm, right? Like so many of like, like you judge kind of the success of governance on or protection of minority rights or protection of kind of particular aspects of governance based on whether or not they actually protect your ownership interest, right? Like that's the real reason why governance exists in firms, right? Or in companies. Mm -hmm. So in these communities where you're building, how are you actually able to step back and say, this particular modular kind of governance toolkit that we built was successful. So I hesitate to sort of like, yeah, so, okay. So the point is like, if it's not just about protecting ownership interest, or is it? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If it's not just about like protecting ownership interest actually makes it easier, right? Because I either lost money or I didn't, right? Or I lost my rights Um, to that claim on the cash flows of that company or I didn't, right? And I either go so, to court and protect those or I didn't, right? So it's, it's way more binary and it's way simpler. And I think this goes to yeah. what you were just saying about we need to learn how to, to be in a community. And I'm just wondering, have some of these things that you've been working on, have you actually identified things that have worked and not worked? And have there been specific learnings about some of the modular tools that you've built that were unexpected? So one of the things that we're trying to build 
that's really challenged our kind of expectations and kind of assumptions going into some of these discussions is, you know, like I'm a computer scientist by training. And I like, I do like to think of like, here's a metric that we need to optimize where like a, or a panel of metrics, like some KPIs, right? But I've been working with this community of artists called Dada that's essentially starting its own DAO and needs to define its own governance. And they're quite honestly a Dada is community in the kind of original political economics, you know, form from, you know, Dada art, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't want any metrics because to them, having metrics defeats the purpose of the community. Because the point of the community is that you have intrinsic motivations to be in there. Whereas, you know, having metrics and, you know, ownership protection and having these numbers associated with it that you're trying to optimize defeats that purpose. It's an extrinsic motivation, right? Counter to community. On the other hand, this is also like an online community. It's very digital. And you know, the thing about computers, everything needs to be quantified or formalized yes. in some sense. It needs to get represented. So how do you square, you know, th- this square with that circle? Yeah, uh, It's really difficult. So I am trying to build or come up with a system right now for like, how do I sort of have a automated quantitative system running on the back end, but that is as invisible as possible to people on the front end? Then how is the system going to be governed? You know, does the sort of numbers become visible at some point? Are the numbers just like different kind of quantities that you know, cannot be evaluated. I don't have lessons from this yet, but I would say that one sort of paradigm that I sort of use for thinking about this is that there are three sets of incentives, let's say. There's like kind of the, the sort of Web3 ownership incentives, right? Around having money or a stake and sort of making money that way. There's the, what I would think of as the Web2 platform incentives. So like, this is how you design like a really, like Airtable or some sort of product or Facebook, mm-hmm. something that's like really wonderful to use just on its own. Sometimes too wonderful to use, too addictive, right? Yeah. But nonetheless, like these are things that you like, you know, people participate in these communities and, you know, facilitate some sort of peer production because of the way that the platform designs that experience, that way of engaging with the community, right? And then third, there's this, the fact of like engaging with communities themselves, like being, having sort of social connections, these network effects, which is tied to Web2, or at least like most successful Web2 companies, but it's not necessarily, doesn't have to be part of it, right? Can be a little bit separate and obviously existed before Web2 was ever a thing. So how can I sort of design all these things together into a package of incentives to facilitate these emerging new kind of digital economies? That's like the real question, I think. But you need to have a sense of what the tools you're working with are. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's early days, right? But I think like the more that we have examples of, you know, the the more kind of edge cases that we develop over time, the easier it's going to be for someone who is not deep in this to come in and say, you know, I'd like to... I'd like to give more governance rights to this kind of value creating stakeholder in my company, but you know, my company has been around for 20 years and I don't want to mess things up or I'd like Mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, move beyond an ESOP because the reality is we use a lot of vendors and we can't use an employee stock option Mm -hmm. because of regulation. Right. And so having these kind of, these kind of modular packets of governance and ownership rights or, or kind of incentive structures that you talk about, I think will be very, very useful over time for people that, you know, are, attracted to this idea 
but also have a lot to lose if they get it wrong, right? And so creating these on-ramps, as you mentioned, I think is really important. So Joshua, yeah, it is the hour. Do you have time for a Dow Dystopia lightning round or do you have to jet? Sure. Let's do a Dow Dystopia lightning round. Let's jump back to it. <laughs> Excellent. So I mean, uh, I could throw some ideas out there. You know, there's like building a squid game on the blockchain. There's all kinds of terrible <laughs> things you can do, right? But but hit, hit, oh, even, you know, you could do, you could make this Dada community you talk about, could you could make their lives hell if you had some extremely legible, composable thing that quantified every last action of contribution to the Dow. Oof. That would just be their hell, their version of hell, right? What do you got? <laughs> I think the scariest dystopia that I have yeah. is maybe a little bit too real. It's a, it's a world in which all these kind of like true believers yeah. in community and collective ownership yeah. hop onto a platform or start using a tech stack that is still you know, pretty much an oligarchy. And all the work that you were doing ends up just accruing sort of capital to a small set of very rich people who then, you know, aren't necessarily like evil, but not yeah. necessarily perfect and have their own biases. And, and then you have a world in which web three looks a lot like web two. And let's remember web two had lots of like, you know, high idealism, right? Yeah. You took the air out of the room, man. Cause I think the worst, that's the worst Dow idea of all time, which is just <laughs> reproducing the world. We already have all of that work all of that compute, all of that distribution, just to re rebuild the same structures we inhabit. <laughs> A gut that punch. Would be. <laughs> <laughs> that's dystopia for you, man. Oh, man, that's good. And I mean, with that, that's probably a good place to end. And, you know, like I said, I will say before we jump off, please show your project. Where can people find you online? Where can they learn more about Joshua <laughs> Tan and everything he's doing? <laughs> yeah, please check out medicov.org. We have lots of projects going on all the time. We have everything from, you know, hardcore backend engineering to Web3 experiments to social science studies on from everything from crypto politics to, in fact, a recommendation engine kind of uh, responding to what Martin was going on about to kind of evaluate how exactly, how do we validate the performance of these governance software interventions? How can we start recommending one versus the other? We're just starting to explore that. So Medigov is an open sort of research community, lots and lots of different people with different levels of engagement working together to build this quote unquote governance layer for the internet. And awesome. we would really love to have everybody jump on board and help out. Awesome. And then also just to further shield the project for you, Medigov is hiring, yes? Yes, we are hiring. We are looking for a backend research engineer as well as, this hasn't been posted yet, but a um, kind of like a CEO slash community manager mm -hmm. position. And we would uh, love to have bring people on board. We just got a few nice new big grants and are really looking to expand. Awesome. So, you know, please find Joshua online and you can also join his DAO Dystopia channel in the Meta Governance Slack. And you can ideate all day as you work on the side on new tools for the Meta Governance. So Joshua, thanks a lot for joining us. This was super fun kind of ideating on future worlds on current tools and all that. Super great. Always great to talk to you. And uh, yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, see you around, Joshua. All right, there you Joshua, go. Thanks so much for your time, man. Talk to you soon. All right, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey. Bye. Bye. Bye.